Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean at Emory University School of Medicine and Foreign Secretary at the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Del Rio is a renowned infectious disease thought leader with a long bench of research around HIV, AIDS, and now COVID. Dr. Del Rio is concerned the next phase of vaccinations, plenty of supply, more reluctance to get the vaccine, will pose challenges for full containment of COVID. Lori Robertson checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Carlos Del Rio here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean of the Emory University School of Medicine, Distinguished Professor at the Division of Infectious Disease and Professor of Global Health at the Rallings School of Public Health. Dr. Del Rio is co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research, co-principal investigator of the Emory CDC Clinical Trials Unit, and he's also the Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Del Rio, we welcome you to Conversations on Healthcare today. Happy to be with you. Well, that's great. And I think we all know that the U.S. vaccinations are accelerating, uh, but there are some headwinds. Uh, we recently learned that uh, the FDA is still uh, 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 analyzing the risk factors with the J&J vaccine. Uh, and many are concerned that this might lead to or might add to some vaccine hesitancy. And we've seen in our own uh, health system uh, a slow number of people who are starting to cancel out uh, as a result. We really welcome your views on the J&J delay and what recommendations you expect to see from the FDA panel uh, moving forward. Well, I think I think there are a couple of issues. Uh, number one, the... Uh, the uh, vaccine-induced uh, thrombocytopenia and thrombosis that we're seeing both first with the AstraZeneca vaccine and now with the J&J vaccine is interesting because it's occurring with two adenovirus vectors vaccine mm -hmm. and, and therefore makes us think that something is, is related to that vector. It also is, is very, uh, we're not seeing the similar thing with the, with the mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that it is, seems to be uh, a, a side effect that is more common in, in women and particularly in, in younger individuals under the age of 50. So what could happen here in the U.S. with J&J is a little bit what happened in Europe with the, with the, you know, the regulatory agency, the European Medicines Agency, which is the FDA equivalent, is they have said, look, this is a, still a very useful vaccine. The side effect is very uncommon, but in certain groups it's more common than others. So don't use this vaccine in people under the age of 50. And, uh, and it may be that the Johnson & Johnson decision here in the U.S. is very similar. Will they also say this is not a vaccine for young women? Maybe it can be okay for men, but not for women. Mm -hmm. I think we need to see what, what a, a little further analysis of the data shows. But I want to emphasize that, you know, for the U.S., uh, we can, you know, it'd be nice to have this vaccine, especially J&J, &J, because it's a one-dose vaccine. But... We have plenty of the other vaccines. I'm more concerned about 
about the impact this has globally because AstraZeneca in particular was a very important vaccine globally. And I want to emphasize that this is still a very useful vaccine. It's still an effective vaccine. We shouldn't discard it. The side effect is, is, uh, is there, but, but it's very rare. And when you have a pandemic that has killed globally uh, 3 million people, we have to take that into yeah. perspective. And we have to say, well, you know, at some point in time, the vaccine benefit outweighs the risk. And, th and that is the case. Well, Dr. Del Rio, uh, it's almost hard to imagine, thinking back over these last few months, that very soon we're going to be in a place where the supply of vaccines probably exceeds the demand for vaccine here in the United States, which is a huge accomplishment, but it would be a better accomplishment if it wasn't in fact due, uh, in part due to the fact there's still so much vaccine hesitancy and vaccine resistance here in the United States. And I wonder uh, if you could comment on the degree to which this, what seems to be quite entrenched vaccine resistance among a significant portion of the population is going to impact our ability to really bring this pandemic under control in the United States. And are you working on any creative strategies or new strategies uh, that you think might help overcome those uh, pretty substantial pockets of resistance and hesitancy? Well, you know, the problem is that the so-called, you know, the, what you're mentioning as pockets of resistance are all very different, right? It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, ice creams of different flavors. They're not one thing in common. And, you know, in African-Americans, for example, there's concerns about uh, uh, the speed of, of the development of the vaccines. Mm -hmm. There's also concerns about, you know, mistrust in the healthcare system and, and issues of racism and, and other things that we've seen uh, among Hispanics. Uh, we're seeing, for example, a lot of people very concerned that, you know, they're going to get deported if they're undocumented, that this is going to lead to them having to, you know, to reveal that they don't have a social security number. Uh, they don't even know, if you look at most places, the, this doesn't even tell you that the vaccine is free. In many places, when you sign up, uh -huh. it tells you that, you know, you have to enter your social security number and your insurance number. And, uh, and that may make some people who aren't insured unlikely to, to sign up for the vaccine without knowing that it's free and you don't need to have that. We're also seeing a significant a hesitancy among uh, a rural white uh, evangelical people. And, uh, and again, you need a different approach. So, so I think in each community, you really have to get down to the community. You have to trust, you have to work with trusted messengers within that community. So, so I think there's not one universal approach I think the other thing we need to do is we also have to to listen to people. And I think this is going to be a labor of love. This is not, you know, the people that rush to get vaccinated are vaccinated. Right. They want to get vaccinated. Right. Is the people that, you know, you, you can take the we can take the horse to the to the water, right? Because right. you can't make it drink it. Right. You have to just take your time. You have to answer people's questions. And what I've learned from doing several forums and meeting with community and meeting with, with people in healthcare and other places is people have questions that they want to answer uh, directly. And I would say they have personal questions. Uh, many times uh, young people are, you know, young women in particular are worried about fertility because they've read misinformation that this vaccine impedes your fertility. You, people talk about, you know, is this going to impact my DNA? What are the long-term side effects? So I think you need to answer each one of those questions. The other issue is that a big group of the population unvaccinated are those young, you know, between the ages of 20 and 40. And for many of those individuals, they're like, you know, this disease is a nuisance, but it's unlikely to kill me. So why should I get a vaccine? And we need to explain to them that there's still reasons to get vaccinated. 
among, among those reasons is not to transmit to others, not to get infected and transmit to others, but also to remind people that although rare, uh, dying from COVID, even when you're young, is still a possibility. <laughs> well, that, that really good advice. And, uh, and while we have sort of a local strategy that we have to implement, it's a global pandemic, as you know. Uh, the U.S. is is lucky, as you said. We're 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 vaccine rich. Uh, we have ample amounts of Moderna and Pfizer. But other countries are not so fortunate. There's a shortage, uh, a global shortage of uh, vaccines, uh, uh, and this is against the surge that's happening in India and Brazil. I wonder if you could just talk about the global supply chain issues and really connect the dots because we we can solve the problem here, but if we don't solve it everywhere, uh, this pandemic and its uh, various uh, uh, mutations and the like uh, uh, will wash up against our shore uh, again. Well, they'll, they'll be here, right? Because we're all interconnected and we still, you know, I think it's really important for Americans to understand that the pandemic will not be over until it's over globally. Yeah. And, and I think the U.S. has a very important leadership role to play in getting vaccines to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, over the last several years, uh, during the last administration, we really uh, gave up our, our leadership role in global health and uh, we have to retake it. And right now that void is being filled by China, by Russia, which are, you know, are giving their vaccines and many places in Latin America are actually actively using the vaccines from China from, and from Russia. And some of those vaccines, particularly I'm concerned about some of the Chinese vaccines may not be as efficacious as some of the other vaccines. In fact, I would rather take the AstraZeneca vaccine, which I think has much higher efficacy or the Johnson & Johnson. But, but we haven't been there doing that. And I think we need to, to, to get our, our vaccine supply to the world. And again, it's, this is not about charity. This is really about you know, solidarity, but this is really in our best self-interest as Americans, because as you say, you know, if we don't control the pandemic in, in other places around the world, we're not going to be controlling the pandemic here. Well, again, back here uh, in the United States, while we see uh, certainly a lot of variation in terms of control, we are seeing some states that are beginning to feel like they've made the progress they need to really relax some of their restrictions right here in our own state of Connecticut uh, that will be happening uh, in the month of May. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I know there's got to be some apprehensions about relaxing anything when we're still in the middle of the pandemic. But if a state is doing well, if the majority of their high-risk populations are vaccinated, is this the time to allow the restaurants to open and go back to kind of business as usual? And maybe I'll just add on to that, of course, because every every day there's something new. Uh, you know, the question has come out about, do you need masks when you're outside at all at this point? And maybe you could tackle that for us. You know, they're all really tough questions. And I think, you know, like everything in this pandemic, we're entering uncharted territory in which we have about 50% of the population vaccinated, especially the high-risk population. And the question is, do you just let the virus run loose? I mean, I worry about uh, what is happening in Michigan, right? Where right. a lot of young people are infected. We had a rapid spread of, of the B117 uh, variant, which is highly transmissible. And we're seeing, you know, ICUs, hospitals overwhelmed with young people. Uh, so I don't want certainly us to be the rest of the country to be Michigan. Uh, now, why has Michigan done that way and Florida or other places have not? I frankly don't know. I think it's very hard to understand. And we can make a lot of hypotheses. Some people say, well, in Florida, you're mostly outside versus in Michigan that is still cold. Most people are inside. 
I don't know. I think there's interesting hypotheses, but the couple of things that I would say is we've learned in this pandemic that super spreader events can happen. And once you have a super spreader event, you have rapidly dissemination. So I think that while you're opening up, I would love to see those, those likely super spreader events to not happen or if they happen to continue happening in a masked way. For example, if I was going to go to a concert where, you know, 5,000 people are going to attend, I would wear a mask. Yeah. If I'm going to be out in the park walking with my dog, I don't think I need to wear a mask. I mean, you know, it's, 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 so, so it's, it, and that makes it really hard yeah, because it re really requires people to, to like, sort of assess and evaluate risk yeah. in ways that quite frankly, we're not used to doing. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we normally don't do that. You know, we cross the street. I mean, this morning I woke up, I got in my car and every single thing we do, we're not there sitting saying, well, you know, should I take the freeway or should I take the street? Because, you know, the chance of me dying on the freeway when I'm 70 miles an hour are a lot higher if I have an accident, but the chance of dying when I'm in the street at 35 miles an hour, you know, I, I don't make those decisions, you know, risk benefit decisions on a regular basis, yeah. yet we're every day making decisions. And I worry that that people will make the wrong decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And there will be, you know, a big event that will become a super spreader event. I think that we need to monitor community transmission. Mm -hmm. And the key is when you start getting community transmission below 10 cases per 100,000 population, I think I'm a lot more comfortable saying, you know, it's time to, to, to relax more things than when we say, you know, there's still, you know, 50 cases per 100,000 population, in which case I worry about, you know, opening things up. So you really need to, to, to look at what is your local tr transmission and what is your local uh, uh, vaccine coverage. And I think if you take those two things into consideration, you can make better decisions. That's great advice. We're speaking today with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean uh, of the Emory School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Uh, Del Rio, your research has been focused on HIV and AIDS. Uh, you've collaborated with one of our colleagues here at the Community Health Center, Dr. Marwan uh, Haddad in AIDS research. But according to a report uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation, we've lost some ground in the fight on AIDS. Uh, talk about the impact the pandemic uh, has had on this and other infectious disease uh, and the challenges and concerns that you have? Well, I mean, the concerns are not only in infectious disease, but in, are, are really in everything, right? I mean, we have essentially, we went into a stop of care and many, many places have shifted into what they do. So many places that do non-essential service. And I would say, you know, people see, you know, community HIV testing as a non-essential service or community STD testing as a non-essential services, those services have stopped. And as a result of that, you know, I think we're doing okay giving continuous care and, and, and viral antiretroviral therapy to people already diagnosed, but we're missing new diagnosis. And I think we're not gonna see until several years from now, the true impact of what the pandemic has done. But I'm worried that, you know, our plans to end the HIV epidemic and to really control transmission, uh, which, you know, relied a lot, it's very similar to COVID, relied a lot of t um, testing, you know, linkage to care, treatment, treatment as prevention. I think a lot of those things have been impacted. And as a result of that, we're gonna see a, a stalling of this effort. We're seeing the same thing with substance abuse, quite frankly. We're seeing an increase mm -hmm. in cases of, of substance abuse as a result of not having access to, you know, uh, to buprenorphine, to 
methadone substitution and too many other programs. So I think overall, the, the impact of the pandemic goes beyond COVID, right? It goes to really into a variety of different uh, areas. And, and as a result of that, we're seeing, you know, when we talk about excess mortality caused by the pandemic, we're not just talking about people that died from COVID. We're talking about excess mortality from other diseases that got impacted as a result of COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Del Rio, in your long and remarkable and impactful career, you've certainly uh, been witness to the ravages of infectious disease on vulnerable communities. And one of the things that you've tried to do is to increase diversity in clinical research trials, which has been lacking uh, over the years. Uh, the president has uh, certainly looked to the nation's federally qualified health centers as one uh, vehicle, perhaps, for uh, addressing the health equity gap in the United States. And I wonder if you'd like to comment on how we might leverage uh, the role and the might of our nation's community health centers, which care for 30 million people, to address health inequity, both in health outcomes, but also in inclusion in health research. Is there a, a role for the community health center movement to play in that area? I, I clearly think it is. I mean, community health centers have been uh, a very important part of providing care to vulnerable populations. I think one thing that you know I would love to see is is access to care, you know, to become not a to really be something that everybody has. I mean, we continue to be in a country where your ability to access medical care is dependent on whether you have an employer that provides insurance and and other things that I think uh, you know the fact that you. You know, nobody likes government-run health insurance until you get to be 65, and then it, somehow everybody loves government-run health insurance. Right. You know, we need to we need to understand that access to care is really important. I think this pandemic and others have shown us that. We've learned, for example, in HIV, Ryan White transformed the way we do HIV That's care right. because it provides access to care, that payer of last result. So we need that. I think as a number one, health equity will will start by by making sure that everybody has access, regardless of their ability to pay or where they work or what they do. The second thing is I think that when you talk about research and, and equity in research, I, I really think that that the only way to do that effectively is to work with the community and to gain the trust of the community. Because you know, for people to participate in research, they have to trust you. And I've learned over time that that trust doesn't happen from one meeting, it happens over time. It happens really from people knowing who you are, what you do, and how what you're doing is benefiting them. I mean, many times I've had research when I've talked to, at meetings to community, the question is, you know, why should I do this? And, and when you, if you cannot answer the question to a participant of why should I do this, then, then simply you don't have their trust and you don't have the ability to communicate with them. So community health centers are, are places where people trust uh, uh, their providers uh, frequently and where they think that it's a safe place and if you have a trusted place and a safe place, it's a good place to do research. Well, I think that's a great point. You know, we're part of Dr. Collins, all of us precision medicine initiative at the NIH and really gaining trust in vulnerable communities is, uh, is the North Star uh, and making sure that uh, there's inclusion. You know, I wanna shift over and talk a little bit about the mRNA technology behind Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It seems to hold a lot of promise uh, for potential interventions in cancer and other infectious disease uh, and, and possibly HIV. I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about the next wave of scientific discovery and, and anything you're seeing practically now that uh, crosswalks over uh, from, uh, from both uh, mRNA and CRISPR technology that's uh, uh, 
uh, been in the forefront of uh, many conversations. You know, there were a lot of people very skeptical and, and didn't really know if, if the mRNA technology was going to work. And I think the success in, in COVID as a, as a way to deliver uh, an antigen will, will really be transformative in the field of vaccinology. Because, I mean, I think, you know, flu and other uh, vaccines will become much more sort of plug and play with mRNA technology than they do with the current technology. I mean, you need, you need eggs, you need, you know, long time to develop a flu vaccine. So I do think that we will see different vaccines develop. We got to remember that mRNA technology initially was developed actually and was being tested for vaccines for cancer, for example, for melanoma and other diseases. So I think it's, it's a vehicle to deliver an antigen and present it in such a way that produces a good response. And I think this is gonna change uh, drug delivery for many other diseases. Uh, I do think also that, that as a result of, of COVID, we're learning uh, something that I'm finding interesting is how we're looking at research in repurposing drugs. And some of those may not be effective, but I think there's a lot of interest in understanding the, the, the way you can repurpose drugs to use to treat other diseases. And I think we will see a lot of that happening going forward in which people are gonna design. You know, I think the trials like, for example, solidarity or, or recovery, or other big studies that have been done either by WHO or by the Brits, again, are gonna transform the way we evaluate medications in, in diseases. Well, that is very exciting. We've been speaking today with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean at the Emory University School of Medicine. You can learn more about his research on infectious disease, including COVID-19 and HIV, by going to vaccines.emory.edu or follow him on Twitter at Carlos Del Rio 7. Dr. Del Rio, we want to thank you for your extraordinary and dedicated leadership in tackling the world's great infectious disease challenges, for your commitment to public health, and thank you for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Delighted to speak with you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? What are the facts behind the pause in the use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine? On April 13th, the CDC and FDA recommended the pause, quote, out of an abundance of caution, the agency said, after six cases of a very rare blood clot among the 7.2 million people who received the J&J &J vaccine. The other vaccines authorized in the United States by Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna aren't affected. More than 180 million doses of those vaccines have been given with no reports of this syndrome. They use a different type of vaccine technology than the J&J &J vaccine. The six cases are women ages 18 to 48. One woman died and one is in critical condition. They had severe headache, abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath six to 13 days after receiving the J&J &J shot. While the cases are very rare, if you got the J&J &J vaccine within the last two weeks and developed those symptoms, contact your doctor. Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, said in a press conference that the CDC and FDA acted quickly because the usual treatment for blood clots, a drug called heparin, quote, can actually cause tremendous harm or the outcome can be fatal. 
So the agencies want healthcare providers to be aware. A CDC advisory committee is reviewing these six cases further. The rare blood clot is called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, or CVST, which occurs annually in 2 to 14 people out of 1 million in the general population. The concern, however, is that the six cases of CVST, which represent less than one in a million of those vaccinated with the J&J vaccine, also had low levels of blood platelets. Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a member of an FDA vaccine advisory committee, said recommending the pause is a sign the vaccine monitor systems are working and that the agencies discovered and took action on a, quote, very, very rare side effect post-approval. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Baltimore, Maryland has one of the highest emergency medical call volumes in the country, and it results in a significant number of patients being taken to the ER for conditions that could have been treated outside of the ER. The University of Maryland Medical Center and the Baltimore City Fire Department teamed up in the hopes of reducing unnecessary ambulance trips and hospitalizations. How do we all start to address health issues more comprehensively than simply calling 911, being transported to an emergency department, when that is not optimal care for patients, nor uh, benefits the system? They created a new pilot program which pairs doctors and nurses at the hospital level with paramedics in the field, bringing medicine right into the patient's homes. A nurse practitioner or physician is partnered up with a paramedic, and we monitor the 911 system and have completely synchronized with that system so that 911 low acuity calls, we augment the Baltimore City EMS system so that we co-dispatch a um, paramedic and either nurse practitioner or doctor to the scene of low acuity calls, have them logged in at scene through EPIC, ask the patient whether or not they could, would, they would like to be treated at scene. If they consent, uh, we then enroll them into our program, register them there, just like a mobile urgent care center. We then treat them at scene, discharge them with the same exact paperwork we discharge them from the hospital, from the emergency department, with prescriptions as needed. And then we follow up with them within 24 hours to make sure they got what they need. Dr. David Marcosi of the University of Maryland Medical Center says that this mobile integrated healthcare community paramedicine program has a two-pronged goal. One, reducing unnecessary trips to the ER by delivering right care at the scene. Two, bringing a coordinated paramedicine team, including doctors and nurses, into the homes of patients being released from the hospital to ensure that their recovery is supported for better outcomes. The pilot also seeks another goal, to keep vulnerable patients being released from the hospital healthier, with paramedics doing frequent follow-ups over a 30-day period to ensure that patients are compliant with their medicines or getting enough to eat, and thus greatly reducing the risk of rehospitalization. It's eye-opening to, once you understand 
the challenges when we discharge a patient or when patients are seen for low acuity issues, people face just at home to navigate the insurance industry, the multiple providers they're supposed to follow up with, the diagnostic testing that they may have to get an MRI, uh, and then the follow-up back to their primary care. The challenges the individuals face, certainly here in Baltimore, and we're exploring could we do this for longer, or is there a better way, once we hopefully empower folks, to transition to maybe a lower resource-intensive setting so that we can kind of transition them to potentially another health support infrastructure. For THS, the transitional health support, the 30-day follow program, our data demonstrates that the patients who are followed in our program utilize and are admitted to the hospital significantly less and utilize their healthcare primary care services significantly more. That translates into lower cost to the system from a physician billing construct, from a hospital construct, and oh, by the way, from an EMS construct, because you know what happens? Those patients typically call 911 to get to the hospital. Dr. Marcosi estimates that the two-year pilot will save the University of Maryland Medical Center at least $4 million, and the fire department expects to save just under $2 million. But most importantly, he says, the patient outcomes are markedly improved. The Mobile Integrated Healthcare Community Paramedicine Program, rethinking how paramedicine is deployed in the field, reducing unnecessary emergency room trips, and by the way, making sure that the emergency responders can respond that much more quickly to the true emergencies. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center. <laughs>